Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 187th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are a leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand, specifically leveraging art that Ayn Rand called the indispensable medium for the communication of a moral ideal through music, through graphic novels, through animated videos, even AI animated videos. Uh, today we are joined by Andy Bernstein. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, go ahead and use the comment sections to type in your questions. We will get to as many of them as we can. So our guest, Andrew Bernstein, is a lifelong objectivist who taught philosophy for many years at Marist College. He previously joined us on the Atlas Society Asks uh, to talk about his book, Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write, or understand math and what we can do about it. He returns to talk about really a continuation of the conversation we've been having with uh, many of our guests, um, talking about this current surge of anti-Semitism on college campuses and elsewhere uh, with a perspective informed by his two latest books, his novel Reckoning and his nonfiction, American racism. Oh. It's the whoops. It's, it's upside down. <laughs> I always do. Um, it's uh, it's decline. It's baleful resurgence and our looming race war. Andy, thank you for joining us and for your forbearance, as always, with with me. Well, that's, it's good to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me on. As I like to say, we at the Atlas Society, we uh, take ideas seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. Um, but we should know how to hold our guests' books properly. So um, I was really honored that you asked me to uh, to read an advanced copy of Reckoning um, and uh, was thrilled to provide a testimonial for that. Um, it was published late last summer. It's a fast-paced, multi-layered dystopian thriller in a way um, mm -hmm. about these simmering tensions between Blacks and Jews in Brooklyn, bubbling over into uh, a race war. So given the response to the terrorist attacks um, on Israel and the Jew hatred that's been unleashed, particularly among the BLM crowd uh, and supposed champions of people of color, uh, the novel seems eerily prophetic. Tell us a bit about the novel, its inspiration, and what it has to tell us about what we are living through right now. Yeah, you know, Jake, that's a, a good question. And I'm, I made a mistake here also. I, I should have a copy of the book here to, to hold up for the camera. Can I be excused for a couple of seconds to go get a copy? I'll be, uh, I'll be right back. I'll be right. No, that's back all right. We're, we're live. So we, we have we have a screenshot of it. So we'll show that. Okay. Um, yeah. So tell us about... I, I know you have these these uh, fiction and nonfiction projects uh, planned well in advance. So um, there we go. That's, that's well, the that's, book. That's American no, that's, racism. That's American racism. We we want the other one. Do you have a <laughs> screenshot of of reckoning? Because I have a copy just ten feet away. Oh, that's okay. There we go. There we go. The reckoning race war comes to America. The artwork done by 
my good buddy Bosch Boston. Uh, yes, that's my that's my new novel came out in the summer. And um, uh, to, to, to answer your, your question, Jack, several several things. Um, first of all, they say you know from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to be a writer and and to and to write fiction and write novels. And they they say the writer's question is, what if? You know what? What if such and such, and then and then you go from there. And a question that occurred to me years ago. This goes back to two thousand and six because I was already afraid that the left was pushing us uh, heavily uh, in, into racism and 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 towards race war even before Obama was elected president. And the question was, uh, what if a Nazi war criminal converted to Judaism, became a rabbi, and hid in in that form? You know, he has a rabbi ministering to the Jewish community somewhere, and we're better than in, in, in Brooklyn, New York. So that was the question that triggered this book that, that I worked on for, you know, for at least 10 years. And wow. um, yeah, I, I, I did, you know, many uh, iterations of, of this. And the the background to this, that that's the ominous you know, rise of racism in the in the country, because we were making progress on racism. The anti, I think, the anti-black racism amongst the white community was and still is uh, relatively low. White supremacism is still around, but it's been dying. You know, for years since the civil rights movement, uh, what which should properly be called uh, the individual rights movement for Black Americans. But as 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 postmodernism became dominant in the American universities where I teach, and that postmodernism, I'm talking about people like Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Richard Rorty, people like that. They are, as I think of them, Marxists on steroids. You know, Marx divided, didn't see human society in terms of individuals. He saw human society in terms of groups, uh, the oppressor and the oppressed. He defined that narrowly in economic terms, the rich oppress the poor. But the postmodernists, uh, uh, you know, Stephen Hicks has explained this very nicely in his book, you know, explaining postmodernism. Uh, the postmodernists, you know, it's not just the rich oppressing the poor. It's whites oppressing non-whites, males oppressing females, straights oppressing gays. You know, and they've taken over the humanities divisions of our universities for like 20 years now, pushing this anti-white, this hatred of white people. And it's, it's terrifying. And so, I, you know, it, it struck me that, I know your questions, but we'll get into this a little bit later, pushing us towards real racism and, and the possibility of race war. So I wanted to show what that looks like in action. And the 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 main character here pushing racism is a, a black nationalist in, in reckoning, Amiri Bantu Baiko, who's this brilliant guy. He's like, Jack, I think of Baiko as like he's a Francisco D'Anconi of evil. You know, I mean, he's just brilliant at everything. He's He exceeds everybody. Um, he's basically a Nazi. He's got the the favored and disfavored races reversed. You know, the blacks are the favored race and the, the whites are the disfavored race. But he holds the impelling principle of national socialism. And that is that that race war is the driving force of social history. You know, it's as distinct from the Marxists who think class war. And not without reason. You know, you look at history and, you know, you're not just the brutal treatment of blacks in America or apartheid in South Africa, but, you know, the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide and the Rwandan genocide. Oh, it's on and the Bengali genocide in 1971 when the Pakistani regime murdered millions of uh, Bengalis, mostly Hindus. It just goes on and on and on and on. And you can see where Baiko is coming from. Uh, and so for him, 
the only way the black man can rise to have his rights, you know, protect us to overthrow the white race in one of its homelands, the United States, and establish a black state. So he's a, a powerful leader of black nationalism in, in the novel. Uh, Marco Winehouse, who's a Jewish rabbi, violent, based on real-life Rabbi Maya Kahani, who founded the Jewish Defense League in real life in Brooklyn back in the 1980s, I think. You know, he, he's, got, he's got a violent cadre of Jewish thugs. They call themselves the Maccabees, who fight against... You know the the black nationalists. And this erupts in, into into race war in Brooklyn. And in the midst of all this, what I think is really interesting is Winehouse, this violent Jewish rabbi, is suspect that the, the Mossad becomes gets you know gets a whiff, gets a hint from so, some people in Brooklyn who know Winehouse that Winehouse may actually be Heinrich Stoutner, a wanted Nazi war criminal, the menace of Medichevsky. And so the Mossad dispatches its leading Nazi hunter, Mick Davidson, who's from Brooklyn originally, but has emigrated to Israel. He's an IDF war hero. He's a, uh, he's a brilliant guy, tough guy, your Mossad uh, field agent, to track down Winehouse in Brooklyn. Find out, is he Heinrich Stoutner? So in the midst, you have this race war going on. In the midst of all this, Mick Davidson's hunting the Nazi war criminal. Uh, Rabbi Jacob Paris is a you know a Holocaust survivor. He's Winehouse's opposite number, trying to bring peace amongst warring tribes. Davidson and his daughter Giselle, who's a Krav Maga tough girl, Krav Maga instructor, sparks fly here in different ways. So yeah, yeah, I got a romance brewing here. There's uh, but but you know really explores the theme of colorblind individualism versus racism in any of its forms and. Uh, it's brutal. Everybody out there, it's not everybody's taste. If you don't like violence, this is yes. not a book for you. But it's, I mean, I, the book definitely does not pull any punches. But I, it's this beautiful light motif throughout, repeated that every individual is unique and not replaceable, not repeatable. So, um, but yeah, it's edgy, folks. It's definitely edgy. It's not uh, for everybody, but for the people who can. <laughs> Who can handle the violence? I uh, and dark because it's about race war. But I will say, I, if I could pat myself on the shoulder for a second, it's very well plotted. It's a hell of a plot, and it carries it the important theme. Uh, it dramatizes this theme of colorblind individualism versus racism in any form. So you talked about, as you demonstrate and catalog in in this book, uh, the decline of anti-black racism over the decades and that's that's an achievement um what does not seem to have declined and in fact seems to have uh risen is anti-jew hatred uh so if you could bring your perspective on that you talked about postmodernism, identity politics, that has kind of taken hold of the perspective of young people. And in that, you know, matrix of oppression, uh, somehow Jews who have uh, been victims of uh, extermination attempts throughout history are somehow, I guess, come out on, on the top of that. Is this identity politics? Is this anti-capitalism, as our scholars have argued? What are some of the currents that are at play here from your perspective? Yeah, Jew hatred is the racism, the form of racism that never dies. 
it changes its forms, it metastasizes, but it, it never dies. And I think here's a clue here, Jag. You look at the at American culture, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm an American, most most aware of what goes on in America and most concerned about what goes on in America. It's the country I love. Uh, where is Jew hatred the most virulent? On college and university campuses, right? And was that an accident? No. Uh, what's the? That's a big clue. What's the dominant philosophy on on, on university campuses? Marxism, uh, Marxism, and and its modern form of post of postmodernism. Um, Marxism, you know, of course, is it preaches inveterate class warfare, right? The rich get rich by exploiting the poor. It's an article of faith in Marxism. The poor must rise up and. Uh, if necessary, annihilate the owning class to, you know, in order to bring social justice. Um, and so Marxism is, I think, a good way to put it. Marxism is a philosophy of foreign by envy-riddled, psychopathological, wannabe mass murderers. Uh, and I'll repeat that. I think Marxism is a philosophy of foreign by envy-riddled, psychopathological, wannabe mass murderers. They want to kill the owning class. They want, they want to eat the rich, right? They want to kill the rich, the most successful. And under capitalism, in, in fact, success, people become successful by hard work and, and honest effort. They want to, they, they want to kill you know, Andrew Carnegie's and the Steve Jobs, you know, people like that, the Hank Reardon's and the Dagny Taggart's and Ayn Rand's novel. Uh, and so if you're a member of the owning class, if you're successful, are you affluent? Are you rich? Are you well-educated? Are you doing well? That makes you an oppressor. That makes you evil. And the Jews in America are by far, I think, historically, I think I could say, by far the most educated, most affluent, most successful Jews of, uh, of history. And so from this, this, this pile of steaming Marxist, postmodernist philosophy, they're the, they're the oppressors. And it's the same in Israel. Israel is a flourishing, prosperous state. The Palestinians are poor. Most people in the Arab Islamic world are poor. From a Marxist standpoint, that necessarily makes uh, the Jews and the Israelis evil. Plus, the Marxists, you know, today, the, the, the postmodernist version of Marxism has introduced a Nazi element into their class war ideology. Because Marxists traditionally were not fighting race war as the Nazis. Uh, but now, the whites oppress the non-whites. That's part of this. Now it's the rich whites oppressing the poor non-whites. And so, well, the Jews are white. European colonizers. They're they're evil. And you see the examples of the evil white man. So you have the the I mean, there's a lot that goes on with anti-Semitism, especially historically. There's a lot of religious, you know, elements to the to the Jew hatred. But today, I think in the modern Western world, the Jew hatred is driven by Marxist postmodernist philosophy that dominates the intellectual culture. And it's not an accident that's most virulent on college and university campuses. So last week, as part of this series, I interviewed Liel Leibovitz, uh, editor-at-large uh, of Tablet Magazine, uh, who's written and edited various books on Zionism and anti-Semitism. And uh, he had a take that I'd like to get your reaction to. He said, quote, anti-Semitism has nothing to do with the Jews. Um, it's a mind virus and a brain rot that affects people completely independently from the presence uh, of and actions of any real Jewish people. And he goes on to um, 
give examples of places where there's very high anti-Semitism, like in Greece or you know other countries where the blue Jews have been completely uh, driven out. And he makes this connection uh, between anti-Semitism to a kind of paganism uh, throughout the ages, living in an uncertain world, which leads to a heightened tribalism and a need to identify um, an, an outside enemy. What do you make of that take? Well, tribalism for sure. Uh, but I don't I don't think the pagan worldview was all that influential in the in the West anymore. Uh, but I think the tribalism, he's right about the, the tribalism, definitely. But the, the that group think is is a product primarily of German philosophy. That's that's Kant, Hegel, and Marx. Uh, you know, Kant said, you know, the the human race creates its own reality in, in, in effect. And we all do it the same. Well, Hegel said, oh, no. Yeah, we create their own reality, but every culture, every nationality, you know, creates it differently. And uh, Marx says, oh, well, even within a society, even within a culture, different economic classes create their own reality. And there's no dictionary of translation. Marx weaponizes that there's, there's endless warfare amongst these different groups, these different economic classes that create their own reality differently and can't communicate. Uh, polylogism, right? There's different logics. We can't communicate. And that a postmodernist is so every, each gender, every race, tribe, nationality, you know, creates its own reality. There's a seething struggle. There's no dictionary translation. The strong win, the weak loses, you know, forces the final arbiter. Of uh, of human uh, affairs, going back to the sophists and ancient Greece on this, so tribalism for sure. I mean, you know, we're, even more than the pagans. I don't know. I don't know pagan culture that well. I don't think he was meaning like paganism literally. You know, poly, polytheism. Yeah, or or that it was a belief in supernatural uh, beings or a worship of idols. That he was more saying that. When people live in an uncertain world, and certainly to the extent that you embrace postmodernism and you reject the idea of objective truth, uh, you're cast adrift in an right. uncertain world right. Um, right. where definitions are always shifting and, and people are, are very suspect. So um, I think that, you know, he was saying that throughout history when things have seemed more uncertain and when there has been a search either for, you know, people to uh, latch on to, whether, you know, it's strongman or looking for people on the outside to demonize. So I think that's kind of where he was looking at it, especially in finding that there are these pockets of anti-Semitism in, in countries where, you know, <laughs> there, there, there aren't any Jews, although in these modern days i mean we're we're all connected and so you don't yeah. necessarily have to have a thriving community of right. of jews in order to believe in this conspiracy of international uh conniving jewry pulling the strings right, right. And, and you you hit it right there's no objective truth on this marxist postmodernist view there's there's only subjective truth there's 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 group truth the the groups are necessarily warring with each other there's the oppressor and the oppressed and so yeah, it makes sense that people would would want to sign up you know with with their ethnic group or with their gender or with their you know with their with their nationality to protect themselves against the oppressor and on this view the jew is uh, uh, the the jews are viewed as 
their success and their affluence and their educational levels makes them, you know, a prime member of the of the oppressor. And so, uh, yeah, I think the tribalism, I think he's right about the the tribalism and the group thing being a big a big part of this. So I want to turn to your book in a moment. And we also have some audience questions to get to. But I just before we leave this topic, how do you respond to people who say, they don't hate Jews. They just reject Zionism. Uh, for my part, I'm pretty persuaded by Barry Weiss's argument in her book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, that if you reject the idea that Jews have a right to remain in and return to Israel, particularly uh, in light of history replete with repeated examples um, of attempts to outright exterminate the Jewish people, uh, then if you're not outright anti-Semitic, you're at least sort of anti-Semitic uh, adjacent, to borrow the argo of intersectionality. What What is your take, or do you feel like that that is a legitimate distinction to say, uh, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic, I just don't think Israel should exist? Um, first of all, I want wants to have a lot of respect for Barry Weiss, you know, who stands up for freedom of speech and, you know, left her position in the New York Times uh, to do so. So I just wanted to say that. Uh, I certainly support Israel. Uh, I'm not sure if she's saying, you know, the, you know, the Zionist, the, there's different reasons that are advanced for supporting Israel, some good, some not so good. You know, the Zionist movement was that, you know, Zion means you know, the traditional Jewish homeland, which is based, you know, now, now the Jews lived there, you know, for a long time uh, in the ancient world when Alexander conquers the Persian Empire. I mean, the Jews, uh, you know, are, are living there and that's in the, you know, Judea, and that's in the fourth century BC and they were living there before that. But, you know, the idea that, you know, God gave this land to us, that's a faith-based belief. That's not an argument that, that I support. But, Israel definitely has a moral right to exist because it's it's a it's basic it's generally uh, a rights respecting nation that uh, it's a it's a civilized rights respecting nation. You know the joke on this. It's not funny. Name the one Middle Eastern country where Muslims have rights, and the answer is Israel, because the Israeli Arabs, you know, the Muslim population, were living in in peace with Israel, living as Israeli citizens. They have the same rights as the Jewish. Uh, Israel. Israel is a civilized, rights-respecting nation in a sea of Arab Islamic theocracies, dictatorships, brutally murderous. You know that that basically want to wipe out. You know most Arab Islamic nations and organizations are dedicated to destroying Israel and 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 killing all the Jews. This idea that the Palestinians want land or their own state. There's a technical word for that belief in, in philosophy, Jack. It's called bullshit. That the Israelis are completely willing to, you know, tra trade land for peace, having a Palestinian state, if the Palestinians and the government respected Israel's right to exist and willing to live in peace with Israel. But no, they are not like most Arab Islamic uh nations. And I'm gonna say this flat out in organization. I'm gonna say this flat out. If I get get in trouble for it, so be it. Islam is evil. I mean, flat out, Islam is evil. Uh, you know, I have all kinds of problems with Judaism and Christianity, but Islam is evil. Uh, it, you know, it claims it's the one true faith. You got a war on the infidels. Islam, you know, Sharia law states, once a land belongs to Islam, it belongs to Islam forever. Muslim warriors conquered the Middle East, you know, roughly 700 AD. Uh, consequently, this is Islam. This is Muslim land. It, it, there's no way, you know, these jihadists supporting Muslims 
will ever accept a non-Muslim nation on Islamic land, what they consider Islamic land. And they're, and they're dedicated not to bringing peace with Israel or living in peace with Israel or having a Palestinian state. They don't care about that. You can't have a non-Muslim nation on Islam, on land that belongs to Islam. Israel must be destroyed. The Jews must be, be killed. That's that's the that's the bottom yeah. line for, for this country. I mean, I I I don't know if I am um entirely in agreement with you. And I know you are writing a book on evil, and so you're going to break it down in terms of you know the objectivist idea of um, irrationality and uh, its ultimate impotence. But, you know, if you look at all of the major religions, maybe not all, but certainly um, in their most fundamentalist forms and their mar most archaic forms, um, that they have justified all kinds of uh, atrocities and, and been to a greater or lesser extent um, rational or irrational or treating people differently. Um, but I do think that uh, Judaism has had this process, particularly this Talmudic process over the millennia of uh, arguing about applications and trying to seek um, the most just interpretation of uh, ancient scriptures and Christianity has also come a, a long way in terms of, um, you know, the crusades and we must go out and convert people. And I do think that there are uh, people um, in, that are trying to have a similar modernizing project for uh, Islam and um, to try to animate a kind of reform movement just like you've had within Judaism um mm -hmm. you have different different branches so uh no i, I, just, I you know I, as, as as i and i and also as an open objectivist i i also sort of um and, and maybe it's just the way that we talk about things and how we try to bring people along um you know i you and i share similar views on um objectivity and on uh, mysticism and on religion, but I kind of try to lead at least with a little bit of honey because no, I uh, understand. This is me. First of all, there's 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. There's a lot of honest people amongst that 1.5 billion Muslims who are not supporting jihad. They're not, you know, they don't and want a lot to of kill, them are kill, supporting kill. and enjoying our content. You're good. Good. There's a lot of honest people in the Islamic who don't want to kill the infidels and so on and so forth. But the, my point is not is not about Muslims being evil. My point is that the philosophy of Islam is, and and look at look at here's, a, here's an important point, important distinction between Islam and its great historical rival, and that is Christianity. Uh, there's a difference here that greatly favors Christianity, and that is Christianity's founder, according to the Gospels, was a man of peace. He, he didn't practice war. He didn't preach war. He practiced peace. He, he preached peace. Uh, so when Christians perpetrate all kinds of violent crimes and atrocities, as they most certainly have, as you pointed out, it's in contradiction to the basic principles of, of its founder. Now, Islam, on the other hand, Muhammad was a man was was a man of war. He preached war. He he practiced war. He was he was a warlord. The Quran preaches warfare. 
It's holy text. And the Hadith, the compendium of sayings and actions ascribed to Muhammad, show that he was that he was a warlord practicing holy war. So when Muslim warriors uh, commit all kinds of crimes or atrocities in, in the name of their religion, it's not in contradiction to the teachings of its founder. It's in accord with the teachings of its founder. And so pacifying Islam is going to be a much more intractable problem than pacifying Christianity. Doesn't mean it's impossible, and I hope you're right, but it means that Islam right now is is a dangerous is a dangerous philosophy. And uh, I can understand why good people living in the Arab Islamic world either keep their mouths shut because they can get killed by the jihadists, or they want to get out, they want to escape. So you know, and and that includes all the Israeli Arabs, all the Muslims who, who prefer to live in Israel. Because their rights are, especially the women, because their rights are respected as Israeli citizens, where they wouldn't be in Saudi Arabia, or Iran, Afghanistan, and so forth. Well, I'm also, uh, I think that there is a moderating force and a positive force that comes with increased trade and uh, whatever else one thinks of the Trump administration, the fact that we have these Abraham Accords and yes. that that has. Um, noticeably led to more deals, more investment, uh, more tourism going back and forth. And, uh, you know, I've talked to people that are, that are donors and, and it, it, you know, they, they're dealing with um, what it means for Israel or for themselves as Jews to have the uh, the fallout of these terrorist attacks, but they also want to get back to business. You know, they, no, they I, also yeah, need I to just, get to Qatar. Uh, they need to get to Abu Dhabi. I, yeah, and, I know. I, um, I understand. I was just yeah. say this like so, so. I was raised in a Jewish family, uh, but I you know completely ignored the Bible and, and Jewish teachings because it's faith based beliefs, and I don't regard it as you know it's true. Uh, and similarly, there are a lot of people raised in Islamic families who disregard the Quran uh, and, and the Hadith. They they want to live in peace, and th it's just much more dangerous to do that in Saudi Arabia to you know to reject Islamic teaching in Saudi Arabia or Iran than it is to reject Jewish or Christian teaching in in America. But I hope you know that there could be some kind of philosophic, you know, moral revolution in the Arab, in the Arab Islamic world. We see, we see bits and pieces of it in Iran, you know, and, you know, and, and, and I know uh, you have content, the Atlas Society has contents that's reaching, you know, people throughout the Arab Islamic world, you know, in Arabic. So, I mean, that's a very encouraging, very encouraging sign. You can't eviscerate the Quran or the Deeth. It says what it says. Uh, well, Thomas Jefferson went through his personal copy of the Bible and deleted all, you know, all the mystical references. But you can encourage people to ignore the Quran and, and, and you know, and, and the Deeth. Then they'd be nominal Muslims the way you and I are, you know, nominal Jews and many Americans, are, you know, nominal Christians. Right. Cultural, cultural, yeah. uh, cultural Muslims, cultural Jews. Okay, everyone, I see your questions. I'm not ignoring you. But in fairness, well, I wanted to have Andy on the show. And I did want to get his perspective on uh, anti-Semitism. I also want to give due to his book by holding it up correctly. <laughs> and I read it uh, twice as evidenced by all of these uh, margin notes. So let me get to uh, a few questions with Andy about this book, and then um, I am going to dip into the questions. So you spend a, a good part of the book uh, acknowledging the evil realities of past white supremacy in the U.S., 
Uh, you catalog the significant progress of Black Americans over the past century. But then you go on to talk about the greatest uh, danger to Black lives, as you put it, being violence um, against by the hands uh, of Black murderers. You cite that 94% of Black homicide victims are murdered by Black criminals, and that Blacks who make up roughly 13% of the American population account for nearly 50% of homicide victims and more than 50% of homicide offenders. Uh, now we hear all kinds of justification, it's internalized white supremacy, yada yada, but uh, what do you see as the uh, root causes of this terrible phenomenon? Well, I think it's leftist principles and, and policies. Uh, first of all, you're right. It's year after year after year after year for decades now, five, six, seven thousand or so, eight thousand black Americans are murdered uh, every year. Ninety percent on average year after year, ninety percent are murdered by black criminals, not by the police, not by white supremacists, although there are instances of police brutality and there are still white supremacists around. But by the gangbangers, by the little gunbusters, as they're known in the projects. Uh, you know, now the homicide rate in black urban neighborhoods has, has risen astronomically since roughly 1970. It wasn't like that before. And so what's happened, you know, the the cause, what's the cause of this? And it it doesn't make sense that it's white supremacy internalized or any other form, because by any metric, white supremacy has declined significantly in the United States over the last hundred years. It, it, if it was white supremacy, the murder murder rates in black neighborhoods should have been off the charts a hundred years ago. You know, when 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 white supremacy really was a prevalent philosophy in, 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 a, in a clan, for example, and millions of members, at least according to the uh, uh, Anti-Defamation League. Uh, no, that's from um, uh, the, the Atlantic, I think. But, you know, was, uh, the, the clan most likely had millions of members 100 years ago when the white population was like only like 95 million. No, what's changed since then is, the, first of all, the welfare state. And uh, this is true, not just of black Americans, this is true of white people, you know, uh, in, in England, in the United States, who've, uh, you know, accepted the, excuse me, I have a cold, accepted the same uh, premises. And that is, you know, you pay women to have children, uh, you know, women who have children, as long as, as long as they're not, they're not married, you know, they get money from uh, husband government, as one white leftist intellectual put it. Uh, so, so fatherlessness, right? So fatherlessness, the, the yeah, uh, well, yeah, fathers the, from the home, and that that right. is a cause of, of That's violence. A huge boys are seeking a, family by right. joining it's a, a huge, gang. Exactly, right? it's a huge problem because you see, you know, there's if you're not married to the kid's mother, you might still have a relationship with the child, but it makes it makes it much easier to be a deadbeat dad because one, you're not married to the mother. Two, you're not financially responsible for your child because she's getting the checks from husband, husband government. And it makes it easy for, for dad to just walk. And many, and many do. And you have a lot of kids being raised, you know, not just a single parent home, but you know, dad's in prison or dad's just not, just not a member of the family. Your dad's just not, not around. You read, you read the true crime literature and you see that a lot of the kids who join the gangs uh, really do come from from families. Not so, really, so there's from, that. From, without a father also, in their life. In your book, you also talk about the role of 
education and also uh, the drug war. Um, well, 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 the uh, on the uh, minimum wage wars. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the education system is a disaster. We discussed this, you know, last year about, last about my book. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people say, I think accurately, that it's worse in the black urban neighborhoods. And you get these kids who go through high school and some of them are reading first or second grade, second grade levels. Uh, so, they, you know, they're semi-illiterate. And then the minimum wage laws discriminate against low-skilled you know, low-skilled people, because if, you know, they have to pay you $10 an hour, but your skills are so low that your work is worth only 6 or $8 per hour, the, you're not going to get hired. And so you have a, thousands and thousands and thousands of kids, you know, boys, with no fathers, little, no education, and no prospect of employment. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, before he was ever U.S. Senator, back in 1965, wrote about wrote about this, you know, when he's talking in his uh, his book on, on the, I forget the title, but, that, you know, the terminology of the day about the Negro family. Uh, and he predicted this kind of terrible social unrest. And of course, leftists criticized him as being a racist. But you have, you know, if we ended the war on drugs, that would be one step forward for many reasons, because that eliminates or, or reduces the financial incentive to join a gang. But if you read the true crime literature, you realize you know, 11 year old kids join a gang, not just to get money, but they have no father in their life. You have 16 or 17 or 18 year old kids who lead the gang. Life expectancy doesn't reach 21. So, you know, they, you got 17 or 18 year old kids lead, leading the gang and they get a family structure. The, the older kids are like a father figure to the, you know, to the younger kids. And the gang really will I'll fight to the death for you. It's like having a family. So, so those uh, are some of the causes. What are some of the solutions? How do we well, turn this around? Yeah, first of all, we need to phase out the welfare state. You know, paying, pay, pay what did Thomas Sowell, the great Thomas Sowell, who's a national treasure, you know, Thomas Sowell put it very nicely. If if you pay people uh, not to get married, you know, fewer people will get married. Uh, you, you know, if you pay, or you pay people to have children out of wedlock, fewer people will uh, will get married. And by the way, uh, Thomas Sowell and the late, great Walter Williams, two brilliant economists, pointed out for years and years and years now, the poverty rate amongst married Black Americans has been below 10%. More than 90% of married Black Americans are living you know, in, the, in, the, in the middle class or higher. The welfare state is responsible for the 70% illegitimacy rate. Uh, so one thing is to gradually phase out the welfare state. Another thing is I think we need a move. Black Lives Matter is a wrong movement. I mean, if it was honest, yeah, of course, Black Lives Matter, all human lives matter. But that's just a Marxist organization, you know, fomenting anti-capitalism and race war and so on and so forth. The movement we need, or one movement we need is Fathers Matter. You know, we need to, you know, kids need fathers. The girls need fathers. And the boys, for the boys, it's it's life and death. We need a movement of Fathers Matter. Remember the Million Man March? We need the Million Fathers March, marching through the whole, all, all cities, but especially, especially through the black urban neighborhoods. Fathers matter. We need, you know, we need to teach kids this in the in the elementary schools, in the middle schools. You need both parties to, you know, to discuss the importance of actually being. If you if you have if your girlfriend's pregnant or your wife is pregnant and the baby is born, to actually, you know, if you don't want to be with the mother, that's your choice. But to uh, be a your presence in your child in your child's life. You know, to uh, I love uh, that a million fathers march. That's definitely yeah. Um, we need the movement. Fathers yeah. matter. We need it all <laughs> over the internet, in the school system, on billboards, on TV and radio okay. ads. We we need we need and we need men fathers standing up and speaking out about the 
not just the responsibility. Now, I'm not the best father in the world. I don't claim that I am. But but your know, fathers who are really good fathers standing up and speaking out about not just the, the uh, responsibilities of fatherhood, but the joys of it, of having a relationship with your own child. Yeah. So now you uh, argue in, in the final uh, chapter of uh, the book that the left or more literally uh, American collectivists, socialists are pushing the country toward a race war. That is a pretty strong uh, position. So help us understand that. How are how are they doing this? Uh, is this wittingly? Is it unwittingly? And what is the end game? What's the purpose of all this virulent anti-white hatred that's spewed out every day? You know, that Rutgers University professor a few years ago said, we got to take white people out. You know, it was that New York City psychiatrist speaking at Yale. She said, I fantasize about shooting white people in the head. You know, it was, uh, you know, this, this, the, the left spews this kind of stuff out every day. We got to be less white. Wasn't that a training mantra at Coke? Uh, we, you know, we, we got to be less white. So on and so forth. What's the purpose uh, uh, of this? Now, I think there are two. The relatively innocuous purpose is, you know, to breed you know, white privilege and so on and so forth, is to breed a sense of shame in the young white Americans who are growing up, which will make them much more amenable. Since it's, don't forget this anti-white racism comes from Marxists. They'll make them much more amenable to a massive redistribution of income from the white middle class to the, to the members of the non-white poverty class, including the insanity of slavery reparations. Um, now, this is a massive grift. You know, as, as evil as that is, <clears throat> excuse me, as evil as that is, it's innocuous compared to the deeper issue. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, for years I've been thinking about this, discussing it with my objectivist friends and everything, and thinking, you know, at one point I thought, wait, a Marxist left is going to be surprised because, uh, well, let's say anti-white racism. Yeah, it's going to make some people ashamed and open to the redistribution of income, but it's going to make a lot of other people angry. You're going to constantly drilled into you that you're evil, you know, your white people are evil. Some people are going to be angry and they may join, you know, Richard Spencer and the so-called alt-right, you know, and the Marxists may, where they say, be careful what you wish for, you know, or you may, you know, you may increase the numbers of these white supremacists. Right now, they're very few. Remember the march in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia in August 2017? There are a few hundred at most, you know, white supremacists and like thousands of counter- protesters the usa today photographs can you know confirm that i think they're gonna they, they may get something that they're not bargaining for and then it occurred to me no they know that the marxist left knows that they know you're going to anger a lot of white americans it's in their self-interest to do it to see the alt-right the so-called alt-right these neo-nazis uh to see these white supremacist movement grow why because you know if you want to impose a communist dictatorship uh, as the Marxists do, not even socialism anymore from the left. Notice how they want to shut down freedom of speech. Now it's communist totalitarianism they're pushing. What do you need to do? Two things. One, you need uh, your philosophy to completely dominate the intellectual culture. And they have that. They control the, the universities, the school system, the, the Hollywood, the, the media, the Democratic Party. They control the uh, intellectual culture. Then two, you know, how did Mussolini come to power in the 1920s? How did Hitler come to power in the 1930s? Part of it was massive street violence. Mussolini's black shirts, Hitler's brown shirts, you know, 
fighting with union organizers and Marxists, endless street fights, riots, burning, looting. You know, street violence go on for day after day after day. So honest people can't get to work, and you see, so see a, a peace and stability collapsing in society. That gives the Marxists, you know, the chance to say, "What does Wesley Mao say in Atlas Shrugged? I need more powers. I need wider powers. We need wider powers to the alt right, the Nazis, the white supremacists. They're already screaming about that. They're priming the pump with this." you know, screaming about whites, you know, Biden says it all the time about white supremacy. We need more power to suppress the white supremacist threat. So yeah, it's in their self-interest to to rile up enough white people to join the, the so-called alt-right or the or the Nazi, the Nazi left, as I as I like to think of it. So yeah, I think race war uh and they they don't they don't have any fears of losing it, Jack, because one, they control the intellectual culture. And two, because they do, they've churned out millions and millions and millions of little indoctrinated Marxists. So they have millions of Marxists and a few thousand Nazis. We know who's going to win the struggle. And they could use the Nazi boogeyman, the white supremacist boogeyman, to frighten the nation into communism. So, yeah, I do think that's part of their agenda. All right. I'm going to jump into some of our audience questions. You guys have been very patient. I appreciate it. Um, of course, as always, our friend, my modern Galt, is joining us on Instagram, and he asks, focusing on the U.S., what do you think are the strongest examples of racism being on the rise? So when you talk about the baleful resurgence of American racism, what specifically are some examples of that? Well, I think the main example is the hatred of white people that's spewed out all the time, you know, today. Uh, the, the, I mean, the New York Times hired that that writer, Sarah, what's her name, Sarah Jiang, who's all over the internet, how, you know, white people smell awful and white people, are, you know, are irrational, white people are evil. And New York Times hired, you know, hired her anyway. And there's, there's, a, there's this endless examples of, of this. The Marxist left has now integrated a Nazi element into its class war philosophy. It's not just the rich oppressing the poor, it's the rich white people oppressing the, the poor non-whites. So the hatred of white people has been spewed out, you know, over the last 20 years as po the, as the postmodernists became dominant in our humanities divisions. That's the, the main example. And that's what terrified me uh, when I realized what was happening and why, what motivated me to write Reckoning, you know, the my novel uh, on this. So that's one example. Uh, and then... In the last few months, we've seen the the Jew haters come crawling out of the out of their holes. Um, as not, you know, I shouldn't even put it that way. They control the universities. I mean, Harvard University, you know, Penn, these, you know, these major universities are, are rife with uh, with 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 Jew hatred amongst the administration, the faculty, the students. Um, so those are those are two examples. And, and like I said, we really haven't seen a blowback yet yet in the rise of the white supremacists, there's still good news here. They're still tiny and marginalized. It's like maybe a few thousand of them amongst 234 million white Americans. But you continue with this anti-white hatred endlessly, you're going to see the alt-right, Richard Spencer and those guys attract more, more recruits. You know, like your friend said before about tribalism, the people are going to need to migrate to their to their tribe out of protection from, you know, from their enemies. So we're going to, we, we haven't seen it yet, but I do think, I do think uh, white supremacy, white supremacism, will will rise, and and having been deliberately fanned by the well, Marxists. Yeah, I think it, there's there comes a point where um, you know you call people 
who generally aren't racist, um, but you repeatedly call them racist uh, and accuse them of, of racism. And at some point they're like, okay, well, yeah, and, as long and as they're going to call me that. Yeah, but I, yeah. I think that's also why that's important. You don't want to fantasize to about shooting white people in the head. This is a New York City psychiatrist saying, well, where was the blowback? She said this at Yale. There's not enough pushback by serious thinkers in the culture against this virulent anti-white racism. It's it's social dynamite. All right. On X, Sterling, with his wonderful dollar sign there, uh, asks, don't you think there's a distinction to be made between people being critical of Israel versus sweeping everything under the banner of Jew hatred? Sterling, I'll take that because actually um, Michael Kaufman, who's uh, been on this show. He, he's with his family. He lives in uh, Tel Aviv. He also gave a keynote speech at our um, Galt's, Gulch Summit in uh, Washington, D.C. He's been extremely critical of, of Israel, um, and he attributes part of this fiasco um, and this failing on the part of Israel to have uh, had better intelligence and, and better deployment against the terrorist attacks to all of the shenanigans that Netanyahu has been doing and trying to uh, change the court and um, making these deals with, uh, as he calls them, uh, the, the mystics and, and the muscle in uh, Israel in order to kind of stay ahead of these allegations. Um, so I definitely do think that there uh, needs to be a distinction um, made. And, and there's a lot to criticize the United States for and a lot to criticize Israel for as as right. well. well. I'll criticize Israel for all kinds of things, the welfare state, you know, and uh, uh, sometimes a very mushy, I think, and weak foreign policy against its enemies, where I, where I would have you know, adopted a much, you know, a sterner uh, attitude towards, towards our enemies. But having criticized Israel, I will always point out that it's basically a civilized rights respecting nation in the midst of Arab Islamic brutality. And consequently, uh, anybody who supports uh, individual rights in this struggle, you know, yet criticize Israel all your right, especially if you live in Israel, you have the right to do so, right? Where you don't in the Arab Islamic world, criticize Israel all your right, as you want, but uh, applaud it and praise it as the only civilized rights respecting nation in that region of the world. Kyle Moore, also on Instagram, um, has a question. Do you disagree that Arabs have also been targeted and been subjected to mass killings? It appears that this isn't just exclusive to any one race. And I wanted to get that question to you because, Andy, you have a whole section in uh, your book on these various racist genocides from uh, ancient history going up to today. And so uh, obviously there, there was a lot of massacres of, of Hindis, right? Mm -hmm, In yeah. India sure. oh, absolutely. Um, by Muslims. Um, mm -hmm. There probably were some massacres of, of Muslims by Hindis, but what was, what was your kind of take on whether or not there have been efforts to uh, have genocide against Arabs or Muslims? Well, you know, a friend of mine's from Pakistan, and he's, a, you know, speaking of a nominal Muslim, uh, and he asked me, uh, he's not he's not religious, he's very, very secular. Um, and um, he asked me once a few years ago, he said, Andy, he said, 
what, which ethnic group do you think is responsible for the murder of more Muslims than any other ethnic group in history? And being fascinated by history and studying it, I said to him, it would have to be other Muslims, right? And he said, bingo, absolutely right. You know, the, and, and, and if, you, if you study the history of the Ottoman Empire, for example, Sunni Muslims, there, was, there were different sultans who every year had the standing pronouncement that within, within the Ottoman Empire, the, the, the Sunni Muslims had to, had to kill at least 100,000 Shiites, uh, you know, in that year. In that in the, in that calendar, there's so many Shiites killed over the centuries. It's amazing that there are any you know, any more of them left. Uh, the the Sunni Shiite warfare within Islam almost makes the Protestant Catholic wars of the 16th and 17th century look look you know secondary by by comparison. So yeah, there's and and you know and Robert Spencer, not not Richard Spencer you know, the white supremacist, but Robert Spencer, the Muhammad and his Islam scholar, you know, publishes a, a, a website, was it Jihad Watch? Every week, you know, this, this past week, there's 17 examples of uh, suicide bombings in 13 countries, 180 people killed, mostly Muslims, you know, killed by, killed by jihadists. So, so yeah, absolutely. But this kind of irrationality, this, uh, and the, uh, sectarian fighting amongst different members of the same religion, whether it was your Catholics and the Protestants or the Sunnis and the Shiites, but just endless, endless racism. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, the Bengali massacre that you mentioned before was, that was 1971. Some people can remember the, the uh, concert for Bangladesh, right? It was that George Harrison. And I think was involved in that. Uh, 1971, you know, the Pakistani regime murdered nobody knows 1.5 million to 3 million uh, Bengalis, mostly mostly Hindus. This is this stuff just goes on and on and on. I mean, the you know, the rape of Nanking, where the Japanese soldiers raped and murdered hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians. They've been taught from the time they were children in the school Japanese school system that the Chinese were no better than pigs and the Japanese were superior race because they you know they worship their emperor and this kind of racist stuff is history is just filled with it and that's why Baiko, my main enemy in, in reckoning is you know and jacob paris even points this out publicly you know the rabbi the holocaust survivor fighting for peace Baiko's racist nazi beliefs is he has evidence to support it the endless race war that goes on all over all over the world so yeah, it's it's endless, and there's no one racial group that's uh, right. that that's more guilty than others. Title. Um, all right. Well, as always happens, Andy, when I have you on uh, in this space, the hour just flies by, and uh, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, so let's talk to let's talk about the solutions. What's the rational alternative? Uh, how do we avoid attempts to manipulate us uh, into acting, you know, out and uh, fulfilling the, the, the stereotypes that people are trying to, to foist upon whites? Uh, what is the rational antidote, as you put it, uh, to this destructive dialectic? Well, here's, here's a lot of good news, Jack. Read Ayn Rand, first of all. Which should, which should be a pleasurable experience because the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, I mean, they're just magnificent novels. They're just they're great stories. And you, you realize individualism is 
you know, the proper philosophy here that a human being, male, female, black, white, Asian, Latino, biracial, whatever, uh, a human being is first, foremost, and always an individual, not a member of some ethnic group or tribe or, or, or gender. Uh, and consequently, what we, who and what we are is based on the moral choices we make. Uh, and, and so, you know, Martin Luther King understood this. Moral character matters. The moral character of an individual human being based on the moral choices that he or she makes, not the gender he's, he or she's born into or the, the ethnic group that he or she's born into, the choices, that the moral choices people make. So colorblind individualism here is the panacea for racism in any of its forms. It should be, it should be simple. You know, you, we want people in our lives who are morally upright. doesn't matter what race or tribe they are. We want people who are morally upright. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the cure. Notice, by the way, the left, who's always talking about Black Lives Matter and everything, uh, individual rights is the solution. Colorblind individualism, they reject it. It's a microaggression. The leftists call it a microaggression. That's why I, get, I think it should be obvious to point out. The left doesn't care about you know black lives or women's rights or gays or transgenders or, or anything. If they did, they would embrace the principle of individual rights because that's the only protection any of us have, especially members of persecuted groups or minorities. But they don't, they reject it. It's a microaggression. But anyway, that's the principle. Individualism, individual rights, colorblindness. This this is the way to fight, uh, you know, racism. And every one of us can do it in our own souls. You know, we, we realize can do it that. in our our own souls. We can do it in our own spheres of influence. I think a greatly underestimated antidote is the uh, the power of example. So yes. um, whether you uh, you know want to be a example of what it means to live your life benevolently, uh, rationally, and productively as an objectivist. Uh, you know, you can spend all of your time out there preaching uh, the ideas and marketing the books, but being yeah, and li an example And living it, like you yourself. said, living it in your right. own life. Yes. And, and that goes as well for uh, being an individualist. Um, it's not about being an anti-racist or a racist, but it's about uh, being an individualist and choosing your friends selfishly um, and being a good friend in return. And so, Andy, thank you for being a good friend uh, to me and to the Atlas Society in so many ways, all of the little projects that we have going on. I really appreciate you. And once again, uh, magnificent job, both on your novel, Reckoning, and your latest, and uh, good luck with your next book, which uh, is is going to be very interesting. So, yeah, cool. thank yeah, thank you, Jake. Yeah, my next book I'm, is I'm going to write on the nature of evil. Write a book on on the nature of evil. It's surprising how little has been written on that in the history of moral philosophy. And so, my book on evil is going to obviously come from a distinctively objectivist perspective. So that's what I'm starting to work on right now. That's the project for 2024. What's the uh, when when do you hope to have you given yourself a deadline or well you you, you know deadlines uh you, you try but you, you know sometimes that you you recognize they're often futile yes. a goal but I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping for this year you know to have right. the finished product at the at the end of the year.
2024. We'll have to have you back um, to talk about that. So uh, there's an extra incentive. (laughs) So uh, thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks all of you uh, for joining us today. Uh, If you enjoyed this video or any of the content uh, that we create at the Atlas Society, please consider supporting us with a tax deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And um, hope you will come and join us again next week uh, for a change of years. Uh, Paulina Pompliano is going to join us on the Atlas Society Asks to discuss her book, Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking uh, That Power the World's Most Successful People. So I'll see you then. Thanks.